From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for, what is today? Thursday, June 10th, 2021. You know, Jordan, uh, 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 Jordan Brickman's with us. Um, uh, senior NBA uh, um, analyst. We talked about doing a podcast in a couple weeks. Uh, we unfortunately did not think that it would be after a five-game loss to the Hawks. In, in, the, in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Now that you've had some time to kind of sit back and, and reflect, what do you think went wrong for the Knicks in that series? Uh, hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. You know, I think, I think it'd be easier to mention the things that went right uh, for, for the series. Basically, everything that could go wrong did go wrong, from the coaching to the performance of the players to um, adjustments made both by the players and the coaching staff, um, from jump, from shots not going in that normally would go in, the players being in their own head, it seemed like it's kind of a, a comedy of errors uh, on our side. And you know, it really kind of opened my eyes to how important playoff experience is, and having those veterans that have been through those wars and know, you know, what it takes to win a series or in multiple series every deep playoff run. And the Knicks were exposed to a team that doesn't have a lot of guys that have been through that, so. Now they do. The team is now filled with people that have been through that at least once. So, so hopefully that's a, that's a start for, for something to come. You know, something that I thought was really illuminating from this series is that the best player in it was the guy who had the most experience, and that was uh, Derek Rose. And I think it speaks to the importance of not only playoff experience, but seeing different things and seeing different matchups. And I think in hindsight... You brought it up in the last podcast that this team changed once Nate, uh, uh, once Nate McMillan took over as head coach. But they also solved how the Knicks were, or sorry, Trey Young def- solved how the Knicks were defending him in that third game. A lot of fans, including yours truly, forgot about it because he got hurt in that game and the Knicks took over in overtime. But they had this solved in that final meeting. And that just translated over to the playoffs, and it led to a coaching staff that failed to make any kind of adjustment whatsoever on how to not only stop Trey Young, but also how to get Julius going and get the others going who struggled. Was, was, was that your biggest surprise, that from game to game to game it was consistent struggles and it was the same thing over and over again? It, it was... It was probably my biggest surprise yes but it's also my biggest red flag with the team moving forward it's that Tibbs just I thought he was thoroughly outcoached by Nate McMillan Um, he to your point he didn't make any real adjustments at least none that were effective uh, that that I could see Um, didn't really you know putting Derrick Rose in the starting lineup backfired I thought that it pretty obviously backfired quickly and he didn't you know adjust again from that Um, they didn't you know, if you look at the Sixers series, the Sixers have better perimeter defenders than, than the Knicks do. Um, they have higher-level perimeter defenders, and there's more of them on that team. But something they were doing in Game 1, I didn't have a chance to watch Game 2, but in Game 1, they uh, were pressing them, and they were doubling Trey. So yeah. basically what they were doing is they were making Kevin Herter be the point guard. And obviously Kevin Herter is not the point guard that Trey Young is, and they were forced to turnovers. Why didn't they try something like that, even if it's for a minute or two in a game, just to kind of break up the rhythm, break, break up the monotony of just putting 
you know, they tried Reggie Bullock, they tried Alpha Fain, Derek Rose, sometimes RJ on him. Um, it seems like they just were, like, we're just going to keep trying what works for us in the regular season because it, it worked for us in the regular season, and they just didn't. There wasn't a lot of adjustment. Obviously, I'm going to be upset by not trying Frank <laughs> at all on him, played him one possess- one or two possessions, basically, in the first few games, and, and no win scenarios for Frank. He is our best perimeter defender. I don't think even Tibbs would disagree that he's our best perimeter defender on the team. How do you not try him for just a few minutes in one of the games on him to see what happens? Um, it, it, it was just really frustrating. And then the offense was so stagnant and so lacked so much creativity. And, you know, that's, some of it is the roster, obviously. Um, but nothing – they didn't put Trey Young in defensive scenarios. You know, I, I was watching the Suns play last night, and Chris Paul – um, calls a screen from I think it was Cameron Payne to get Michael Porter Jr. on him, and he's and he says I want this matchup because I know that Michael Porter Jr. can't guard me. How can they not do something like that to Trey Young, who's probably the worst defensive player in the NBA? Um, you imagine, you know, why not use Reggie Bullock on the screen for Julius Randle to bring Trey Young over there and try to isolate him uh, in space? It felt like the court, and I said this to you, Jeremy, um, uh, at some point during the series. I watched the Knicks game, and it felt like there was no room at all on the court. And yeah. then I watched other games, other series in the playoffs, and there was tons of space. They just the, the Hawks did a great job. They put they have a lot of big athletic bodies that they can throw at Randall, A and one on one, and B to help. Like Clint Capella had an amazing series, I thought, which we highlighted on this podcast a few weeks ago that he was going to be a problem. And the jump shot stopped falling. And once jump shots stopped falling, you you're a one trick pony, and they shut down the one trick. So um, it was just. They were just thoroughly outplayed, but again, I think the out-coach part is, is the more concerning thing going forward, and stubbornness to make adjustments from the regular season. And one other thing I want to mention, putting Derrick Rose into the starting lineup, the, the ripple effect it had on the second unit, that was like, and obviously we saw that, and, and it had an impact, and in hindsight, it's easy to see it. Tibbs did not prepare the team for these adjustments throughout the regular season because he was so strict with the rotations that he had. If he tinkered a little bit more during the regular season, the team may have been a little more prepared or have a better understanding of what could happen should lineups change and adjust. He, he refused to bench Alfred Payton in the regular season, and it cost them in the playoffs. Uh, and it was something that the, obviously the fans were crying for and seemed very obvious to a lot of people to get rid of Alfred Payton from the lineup and the rotation. Even if they put him in the second unit, um, and they didn't, even, they didn't do any of those tinkering, any of those uh, experiments in the regular season. I think a lot of that cost him. At the end of the day, the regular season, you know, it's easy for us to say now that we got the fourth seed, but the regular season is to prepare for the playoffs. And I don't think that Tibbs did a great – once it was clear the Knicks were going to make the playoffs and have a decent shot of winning a series, I don't think he did a great job preparing them for the playoffs from a, um, you know, playtime standpoint, from trying different things standpoint. Obviously, he gave them binders of notes that he apparently never really used, but um, that's my biggest red flag. See – and you bring up something so important, Jordan, and I feel like you should have been coaching this team because this is something Tibbs never did, which is you were thinking from the get-go, and this goes back to that conversation we had off-air about expectations, right, and changing expectations. And I almost feel like they had my frame of mind, which is this is all gravy, because when you're suddenly in playoff contention, you need to make the adjustment to start trying different scenarios. And they were totally unprepared to have Rose leave the second unit and join the first unit. They were totally unprepared 
for some of the things that got thrown at them, and they never experimented with what the Sixers did in game one with those traps, which completely changed the entire Hawk offense and gave the Sixers a chance down the stretch in that game. And it really is shocking that they didn't do any of that down the stretch. And I don't know if that's the West Coast road trip being so late in the year. I don't know if that was them trying to avoid the play-in tournament. But it really is shocking that they did not try anything. And especially in Game 5, when you've got nothing to lose and you can throw the kitchen sink at this, there was nothing different being done. There was nothing different being done. And you just named three different things that they never tried. That, to me, is astonishing. Just absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely frustrating. As a fan. I do want to say one thing just about things in general. The guy obviously had an incredible season, won Coach of the Year. He knows way more about basketball than, than I know in my pinky. So I want to give him, you know, credence to some of this stuff. But um, it, 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 just, it just screams... Uh, stubbornness, really. I- I'm sure he thought of all of these things and for whatever reason decided to opt against it or felt like, you know, let's say, you know, Frank Nielakina putting him in the starting lineup, they hadn't had enough practice together, so, you know, I don't feel comfortable with him or whatever, but um, it just seems like your team needs to spark something new. Just try these things. You just got blown out two straight games in Atlanta um, and then... You know, they didn't do anything different. Trey Young could walk into the paint at will and hit his floater. They didn't take away his floater, make him a passer. They didn't They didn't really do anything to make him uncomfortable. All the hard fouls they used were on players that were Solomon Hill and <laughs> Gallinari, like bench players. Use your, if you're going to use hard fouls, use them on Trey Young. Knock him on his ass. Make him think about it. Um, it's just, it was just... It was. It was just not. They just didn't perform in really any capacity um, in the series. And even Derrick Rose, who had such a hot start um, by the end of it, was not the same player. You know, you can only have so much uh, wheels on those tires, uh, so much tread on those tires. I think over over time, he's, he's better suited for a twenty-five minute role. I think than than forty minutes. But um, totally. And and he said that he had a, that he suffered some kind of knee injury in Game Four, which hampered him um, in Game did Five. Did he yeah, he did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I did because he looked. I was. Excuse me. I was there for game five, and he looked hurt. I didn't see that he said that. Yeah, he did. Um, which kind of explains why he just seemed off from the get go in that game. Um, mm-hmm. from you know just just from the jump really. Um, and it, it. I mean, that's probably out of gas too. I mean, you know, just just being pushed way past. You know where he was ever supposed to get to. Uh, Jordan Brickman with us here on teeing it up. Um. You know, I've talked, and, and for those who have listened to this podcast for a long, long time, you've heard me have many conversations with various golf guests about guys who don't have it, and it's in their head, and it takes something to bring it out, whether it's a good bounce, an unexpected event, um, just something to turn the tide. And Julius Randle, for the most part in this series, was never able to turn the tide. And what I'm wondering, Jordan, from your perspective is, is this a function of Julius being completely in his own head and no matter what the plays were and no matter what the types of screens or things that they ran for him, 
he was going to struggle or was this also a function of poor coaching? Because it was astonishing the difference <clears throat> Sorry, between the regular season and the playoffs for Julius. I think it's a combination. I think it's both of those things. Um, you know, he was very obviously in his head. Some of those turnovers he had in the series that he's, where he's passing to nobody or mid-jump shot, he passes the ball. He never did that stuff in the regular season. Um, so, so that's definitely in his head. But it is also on the coaches to do something different to get him going. Um, you know, whether it's to use him as a screener, whether it's to get him in the post and try to isolate the floor and spread the floor, whether it's, you know, I would have liked to see them try Obi, at the, Obi and Randall together at the 4-5 a little more than they did for just that few minutes span because that spaces the floor. You can maybe get Randall in the post with some good position in that scenario. Maybe it makes Capella harder to play if you're spaced out and Obi's able to shoot some of the threes that he was pretty decent at doing during the, during the, the, the series. Um, so I think it's a combination of both things. Again, ultimately, though, if he's not hitting his shot, his jump shot, his step back, his patent, his three-pointer, he's a much easier guy to guard. And he was last year, Randall, with this year's shot profile, which is worse than last year Randall was. So um, if he's not hitting his shot and he's not – and, you know, he, he had the second, the second half of game two, he, he really started to get going. And even in that half, he had one of those terrible passes for nobody out of bounds. Uh, but he, you know, he, he closed. He helped close the game for the team. That was, and I was hoping that would kind of spur him. And he would have splashes where he would, he would hit a three or you know, hit a couple shots in a row. I thought game three he really forced the issue. I think it was game three where he came out and really forced the issue and yeah. tried to get going. He still wasn't very efficient in that game. It's it, it's tough, you know. It, I think it's a combination of both. But I think it, it was a great experience for him. I, I think. You know, everyone's like, he's not a one, he's not a one. Like, no one was saying he was a superstar going into the postseason. Obviously, we were hopeful that he would, you know, continue his success in the regular season. But I think it's pretty clear he's more of a Bosch than a LeBron type of guy long term. You know, he's a very good player, definitely deserved to be an all-star, can definitely score and do a lot of things on the floor. But, it, but you know, if you com- compare him with, pair him with another star or two, that's going to be where he's going to be the absolute best come playoff series. So, um, very good player, just needed time to go through this, and, and he seems like a guy that this will help fuel his off-season workouts and, and hopefully his career going forward. Um, you mentioned this at the top, and I want to dive into this because it drove me nuts at times, that it seemed like players started overthinking and they started doubting themselves and their abilities. And you can go down the line in players who showed this. And I thought, you know, there's a couple looks uh, Reggie had. There's a couple looks that Nerlens Noel had. It's like, why are you hit that shot? Why are you passing suddenly? It was just doubting their own abilities. And as somebody who has not played professionally but has played very serious competitive basketball and as somebody who has worked really hard to get your own game better um, in the last several years can you take the folks out there inside players heads as to why they would suddenly stop doing what got them there in the regular season and obviously if defenses are playing you differently that that's different but there were times in this series where Nick players had great looks and they did not take them and, and they chose to pass. What's going through their heads in those moments? So I'm going to uh, do a comparison to, to a baseball player, actually. So Jacob DeGrom, best pitcher 
in baseball, yep. multiple Cy Young winner last few years. Um, he uh, he had like 14 strikeouts the other night, and the catcher that caught the game, Thomas Nito, said afterwards that Degrom asked him in the warmups if his if he looked like he had good stuff tonight, and like he was not certain that he had good stuff. The best pitcher in baseball had a crazy start. Basically, doesn't give him more than a run, and he was not sure of himself. Um, going into the game, which I was like totally shocked by. I would think he would be the most confident man to ever take a mound every night. And I think that speaks to the fact that athletes they can doubt themselves, and they can, and it doesn't take a lot to doubt themselves. And when you're they're in the playoffs, maybe for the first time, or it's a bigger role for you, like a Reggie Bullock's been in the playoffs before, but this is his biggest role he's had on a playoff team, um, or, or any or any of these guys um, that are playing in the playoffs. The moment can sometimes be too big. And a lot of times you're rushing your shot a little bit quicker. You're, once you miss one or two, and now you're questioning, I'm off tonight, I need to do other things. Um, it, 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 it can be very easy to start to doubt yourself, and those things can snowball and snowball and snowball, especially when the other team is playing as well as they were, as the Hawks were. If the Hawks were, let's say, not playing super well and the games were close and the Knicks were able to grind out and keep the game close for, for, as the series went on, I think that these guys would have gotten going eventually. Um, and some of them did have some moments. Reggie, I think, had two games where he hit four or five threes. Um, and once he hit some threes, it opens up the whole floor. RJ had a game or two where he put up some decent stats. Um, but it can very easily snowball. And the pressure and the bright lights of, of New York and the playoffs in general um, and the fact that the Hawks know down to the dribble what everyone's moves are and what they're trying to do, it's just different. And, you know, to speak for personally, like I played – basketball the other day for the first time in a little bit, a five-on-five five game, and I hit my first shot and went in, I felt good, and then I started to get a little tired, um, and then my form started to, to fade, I started missing shots, and it was I was just not in the shape I needed to be in to play, and, and once you start to get in your head about that, then I'm short, then I'm long, and you start kind of getting getting in your own head about what you need to do, so, um, you know, these guys are pros, they're going to they're gonna get better and, and, and learn from these moments, but um, they got an ass whooping. So they got in their own head, and I think that they will be able to learn from it and adjust and hopefully know what to expect next time they're in a series. Jordan Brickman uh, uh, here with us and teeing it up. Let's talk about one more guy specifically, and then we'll start talking about the offseason. IQ was so effective in other games during the regular season against various opponents and various times of the game. No matter if it was um, closing, if it was leading the second unit, there were a lot of different moments where he showed whether it was the floater or big threes or nice steals. Um, He had his moments. And I thought towards the tail end of the regular season and then into this series against the Hawks, he kind of slacked off, for lack of a better term. Where are you? What's your theory on A, what happened to IQ in the Atlanta series? And B, is IQ a one? Is he a a two solely? Can he be a one? Where are you right now in IQ, his development, and then what you want for year two? I don't think he's a one. Um, I think think he's. I'm not as high on IQ as others are. I don't think he's a starter long term. At at this point, I don't think he. He's able to create enough um, and or defend enough to be to be a starter long term. Um, he he obviously had some great games this year, but he um, he had some duds. 
this year as well. And I think it speaks to the fact that he's kind of a two-trick pony. He can shoot the three, obviously, as we all know, and he has the floater. And the floater in the beginning of the year was pretty darn consistent, and towards the second half of the year, it, it started to, we started to miss it more. And once that stops going in, then you don't have to worry as much about the drive for him, and you have to, you don't have to do is overplay the three. Um, so if you look at the stats for the, the, the playoff series, he had two games where he made impact. They were both home games. And that's very common for, for rookies and for role players to be better at home than they are on the road. He shot 20% higher this season at home versus on the road. Um, so guys at, that, at this stage in their career, they're generally going to be better with the home crowd cheering them on. They're more comfortable um, than they would be on the road. So, so I don't think it's, we can expect much from him, or at least this past year, to be an impact player on, on the road in these playoff series. Um, I thought in Game Five he was the only one that was fighting um, yeah. until he kind of, you know, he had that steal and he hit a couple shots and, um, you know, I love that. I was thinking this guy's about to go crazy and, and lead us back to to a victory here. Um, uh, you know, our, our crazy next optimism. But um, you can just if he's not hitting his floater, he's not, you know, this uh, crossover, you know, big big um, ball handler that's going to break down the defense. He, he relies on his quick first step his floater and his, and his three-point shot. And if, if one of those is off, it becomes much easier to guard. I think he can make the basic reads as a passer, but he would need to become a, a very high-end scorer to be able to play point guard in this league. Um, you know, he's a point guard defensively, and he's not a great defensive player. He's got some length and he competes uh, on the defensive end. So to me, he's, he's Lou Williams. Um, that, that, that's kind of what he'll be, but... Um, you know, maybe, maybe he becomes like a C.J. McCollum if he works on his handles a little bit more and can work on his pull-up game. The, the thing, the other concern I have with him is his jump shot. He has a very wide base, and he shoots it. His, 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 uh, his, where he loads his shot is pretty low. It's that it's a little below his chest or right around his chest. That normally you want to start a little higher than that. Um, it's not easy to shoot that that jump shot on the move. So that's why when you notice his floaters, he kind of skips. You know, he has like one foot in front of the other, and he mm. skips. He doesn't shoot the same shot that he shoots for three on his floater. And it's difficult for him, I think, to shoot that shot off the dribble because defenders can catch up to him. So that's a concern for me long-term, to be a guy that can score. He, if, him, if he's going to be a starter, he's going to have to score in the 20s a game, in my, my opinion, because he's not a defensive player, and he's not, probably not going to be getting four, five, six assists a game. So he's going to have to be a high-volume um, scorer at a, at a good efficiency. I don't know if he can do that in the starting lineup. So to me, he, he's Lou Williams, uh, that type of archetype player, very valuable. I love to have that guy, but, you know, we'll talk about the offseason. To me, that's not a guy that um, we need to, like, invest in long-term. I would love to have him on the team, but if another team wants to, wants to give us something great for him, then, then I'm open to it. Um, and... You know, something about that shot starting low as well is that's easy to be stolen if a defender catches up to you. That's um, right, yep. And that's obviously not what you're looking for either. All right, the Knicks, uh, b- because of past free agent issues, are in a very interesting spot when it comes to free agency. Um, they've got two first-round picks, 19 and 21. They've got the 32nd pick in the second round. Um, they've got Rose, Burks, Peyton, Noel, Mitch, Reggie, Taj, 
Frank who have some kind of free agent status. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of moving pieces here for the Knicks. Um, and there's a lot of, of guys who could be going, could be staying, could not be. So before we get to prospective prospects or potential prospects, um, who, uh, besides Alfred Payton, who I think the entire Nick fan base would like to say goodbye to immediately, um, who would you like to keep and who would you like to say goodbye to? So I'm interested in, uh, we're, we're going to assume Alfred Payton doesn't exist for this conversation. Uh, I'm interested in everybody and bringing them back if the price is right. Um, Derek Rose as a backup point guard on the team, six-man role, I would love to sign him to, to a deal. I think he might be open to it. Obviously, he likes New York. He obviously loves Tibbs. I think there's a chance that he's open to coming back and have a team-friendly deal, but there's also a chance that I seem like the Lakers could be a good fit for him, which I think makes a lot of sense for him to go and, and chase a title. So um, I would love to have D-Rose back, especially because he seems like a great, great locker room guy. Players really like playing with him. Um, and he adds a little bit of credibility to, to the team, I think, as well, even, even at the later stage in his career. He's only 32, by the way, um, but he's an old 32. Todd Gibson seems like a great, ideally 15th man, 14th man on the team, third, probably ideally a third strength center on your team, which is what he was signed to be. Um, I would be happy to bring him back to the veterans minimum. I'm sure he would be as well. Um, I like Reggie Bullock. Uh, I don't think he's a – they really need more creativity out of the one and the two. Um, you know, if he's going to be our backup two, that's interesting to me. Um, he had a great season. He's a better defender than I gave him credit for. Um, and he can obviously really shoot the three. Fairly, a little inconsistent, but he can really shoot the three. Um, so, again, on a, on a team-friendly deal, seven, eight million dollars maybe a little bit more. Um, I'm okay with Reggie coming back. Um, Alec Burks, I think he's also a great guy for the bench. The Knicks all year had an advantage when the bench units came in, which is one of the reasons why moving D. Rose out of the bench was a, was a negative because they were winning those minutes and then they stopped winning those minutes. But um, Alec Burks, again, guy that's been around the league a lot. He's, done, he's been on a lot of different teams. If you can give him a couple-year contract at a, at, a, at a low average annual value, he might accept that because he probably wants some stability in his life. And he's the guy that as we saw in game one of the playoff series, he can get hot and can carry you to a victory. I don't like when he plays point guard, but um, he's, he's big. He's got some versatility, so I would like him to come back. Um, Nerland Zoel had obviously an incredible regular season. I think we see, and a lot of people have said, like, if we had Mitch, the series would have been different. I don't think that it would have been. I think that Mitch does some things that Nerland doesn't do. He's a more of a vertical lob threat. He's a very, he's an offensive, very offensive rebounder, which Nerland's is bad, both offensively and defensively, but... Mitch is not a great defensive rebounder. Um, obviously, he blocks a lot of shots, but Nerland's also blocked almost as many shots. Um, I don't think that... And Mitch, Mitch is even more limited offensively than Nerland's is, and Nerland's limited offensive abilities were at the forefront, I think, of, of how the Hawks could defend the, the, the Knicks this year. So I would like Nerland's to come back on a similar type deal. I would, I, For all these guys, I would be happy to give them the same contract they had this year and extend it to two or three years so they can be comfortable here and feel and feel like they have a home. Um, but I don't want to overpay for any of them. They can get a couple million dollar raise if they if if, if they if that's what's necessary to keep them. But no overpaying. But I'd welcome all of them back for the most part with open arms as long as the contract values are are reasonable. And then you and then you improve the roster hopefully around those 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 pieces 
um, as well because there's you could bring all those guys back, give them all a couple million dollar raise, and we're still going to have like fifty million dollars in cap space. So, um, and by the way, we didn't mention Frank yet. Obviously, I want them to bring him back, but if they're not going to play the guy, then set him free. Um, like if you're not going to play him in a series where you're getting roasted by a point guard that he has a history of defending well, then what's the point of him having him on the roster? If they do extend him, though, he would be the player that breaks the Charlie Ward curse. No, Nick has gotten an extension since Charlie Ward. No, no Nick draft pick has gotten an extension from the Knicks since, since Charlie Ward. So uh, Frank has a chance to be that guy this year, but if they're not going to play him in the playoffs at all, then I, I don't see it happening. Yeah, I, I can't see that happening, even though... Um Look, you'll be a fan of him wherever you go, but I, wherever he goes. But obviously there's something going on there as to why he was never played in that series, really, except for, you know, that those little spurts. And that's where I think it gets frustrating as a fan. It's like, geez, do you didn't even try the guy. Is there something else going on there? Or is it, you know, like, like what's happening here? You know, right, please right. fill us in because something something's amiss here. Um, when you look now at all the prospective free agents, Derek Rose says he would like to be back, but it's up to the front office, and the front office has big plans. He did not specify what big plans meant. Um, as you sit here, A, what do you think that means? And then B, who would you want with all this cap space? Because they have the opportunity to go big for somebody. This is a terrifying offseason. Um, kind of a make or break offseason for the next, honestly, the next like five to ten years for the next. Yeah. Um, you, can, you can trade the farm. You know, there's rumors that Damian Lowe is available. Uh, maybe De'Aaron Fox is available. Maybe Chris Paul opts out, and that's three thousand Phoenix, which seems unlikely. They, they seem to be on the final track at this point. So I would imagine he'd want to return. Um, you know, obviously Carl Anthony Towns is always someone that could be brought up, but I think he's looking to stay because they seem to be building something towards the end of the season with Anthony Edwards and him and Russell uh, coming off the bench. Uh, so, so I don't know if he'll be available, but it seems like there are opportunities. Kawhi is a free agent, potential free agent. Kyle Lowry is a free agent. There's a lot of guys out there that, in theory, they may be able to go all in. What I don't want them to do is to sell the farm for Damian Lillard. And by sell the farm, that would be, you know, Emmanuel quickly, Obi Toppin, five first-round picks, Kevin Knox, and maybe some other, some more, potentially. Maybe R.J. Barrett gets involved in that trade somehow. Um, for Damian Lillard and nothing else. I only want them to go all in if it means, you know, I'm just going to use Damien as an example. This could be De'Aaron Fox. This could be any of these guys you're talking about. If it means you're getting Lillard and Kawhi, or, you know, you're doing you're getting Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard, or Chris Paul, and you can trade, you're signing Chris Paul, and you can trade for uh, Bradley Beal, something like that. It doesn't make sense to me to trade the farm for one of these superstars if we're not going to also be a championship contending team on day one. So that's what scares me about this offseason is the fact that they might sell the farm for one of these guys and there might be nothing behind it after that. So we'll see what happens. That's probably plan A for them. They probably want to go after one of these guys um, and, and add that legitimate superstar number one talent to the roster move Randall to the two, you know, the, 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 the 
number two scorer on the team um, and really become a, uh, a force in the East. But again, I, that scares me because that means they might not be a title contender by just adding Damian Lillard to this roster. Again, just as an example. Um, the other option is, is plan B. My guess is what is plan B for them, which is um, incremental improvement. So you look at Alonzo Ball, a Spencer Dinwiddie potentially coming to the Knicks, um, like a Norman Powell, those types of guys that are better than what we have now would improve the roster. We're not, we don't think this is a title contending team by doing those things, but it's a better team. Guys that are young, still improving, maybe in their prime now. I mean, Dinwiddie's coming off a big injury, but young guy, knows how to play in New York, obviously. Um, so that's the two ways they can take it. Uh, I think they're going to look to to package their first-round picks and maybe the, the thir- third to overall pick to move up into the lottery, which I'm in favor for. I don't know this draft too well at this at this point, but um, I don't see Tibbs wanting to play two more rookies um, in, in the rotation next year. It's going to be a stacked lineup probably no matter what. going to have a lot of depth, essentially no matter what happens this offseason is my guess. So I don't think Tibbs is going to want to have that many rookies in the locker room, so he's gonna, they're probably going to move those either pieces in a big trade or to move up to the lottery uh, and draft one guy that they feel fits the need. But um, that's the two ways I can see the, the offseason going. Uh, I just I don't want them to mortgage the future if it doesn't mean that we are an immediate title contender, Eastern Conference you know, contender to compete against the Nets, obviously, the Bucks. We'll see what happens with them if they get like, swept in the series, which I don't think will happen. But if they really get destroyed by the Nets, what they do, um, the Sixers are going to be there. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think this is a chance the Sixers could offer up Ben Simmons for a guy like Damian Lillard uh, I mean, or one of these other guys that's out there. So um, I'm terrified of what could happen. Leon Rose and team last offseason had a nice offseason of doing essentially nothing other than small, smart signings like Nerlens and Alec Burks and obviously Tibbs was a great signing. Um, so we'll see what happens this year when the pressure's on to make, uh, to make some big decisions. I'm going to ask a weird question, but I think it speaks to what you were getting at there, which is, are we a fake four seed? Were we a fake four seed? Were we somebody that, because of other teams' struggles, got the sexy four seed in the East, and we're actually not a real, quote-unquote, four seed? And and, And my concern is... If they make a big deal and a big splash because they feel like they're on the precipice of becoming a championship team, whereas if they continue to make incremental, uh, pragmatic moves that Phil needs, especially when it comes to facilitators, creators, um, somebody that can guard really good point guards consistently, it just seems like that might be the better way to go rather than believing that we're this four seed one or two years away from being you know primed to live it up in june when in fact we're not there because the hawks hawks kind of exposed us to you know does does that make sense am i on to something here i i think so i i think that the Knicks, i mean they're not the fourth best team in the east pretty pretty clearly right so um i think a lot of things broke their way this year i think that um for the most part, fairly um, COVID-free, this team. I mean, yeah. Rose had a little bit. Burks was out for a little bit. But Randall and RJ, who were the two most important players for most of the season, 
uh, were, were fine. I think they missed one game combined between two of them. So, so that was a huge advantage for them. Uh, Tibbs teams always overperform in the regular season, which we talked about on the last pod, because they play harder than everybody else. Come playoff time, everyone's playing just as hard, so a little bit harder come playoff time. But they, they were fortunate there. You look at the Celtics. Celtics are a more talented team than the Knicks. They, have, they would probably take Jalen Brown and Tatum um, over Randall long term, but Randall can do a little more than those guys. The playmaker, nevertheless, um, you know, they, they had a worst-case scenario season. Um, Atlanta obviously fired their coach. If they had Nate Millen all season, they probably are a top four seed easily. Uh, Pacers had a, had a worst case scenario season. Um, you know, so I think they're probably maybe the sixth, sixth best team in the East, something like that, um, in, in that range. Sixth best, sixth best combination of roster and coaching. But, you know, a team like the Hornets is fast rising with Lamella Ball, who I think is a superstar. Um, and, and, and they got some gas space all season. Got Gordon Hayward had some injuries. You know, a lot of these teams had injuries, COVID scares, keep um, your players missing long games for that. So, you know, shortened season, guys resting. Raptors really kind of fell apart this year. Um, so I think we're about the sixth, the sixth seed probably, uh, you know, roughly. And to your point, adding a little, like, or, or the point that I was making earlier, adding just Damian Lillard to that team. Yeah, maybe now we're a four seed. Maybe now we're a three seed. But, it's not enough to beat. You know, we're looking the East. The top of the East is better than the top of the West at this point. I, yeah. I'm, whoever wins the East, is, in my opinion, is win the championship this year. I'm with you totally. It, it, you know, so so we're we're not talking about you know the, the early 2000 East or the 2010s when the East was like LeBron and maybe the Celtics or maybe one other team uh, that was going to try to beat LeBron. But there weren't really a multiple title contenders. There are right now, in my opinion, in the East. So. Um, but this is no joke. You have to be smart about what you're trying to do here. And, you know, RJ Beck's 20, Randall's 26. These guys, have, if, if we think Obi and quickly are here long term, those guys are obviously, Obi's pretty old for a rookie, but they're still very young with a lot of room to grow. And we have these all these picks and all this cap space. If we want to go for it, I'm never going to complain about trying, but um, I just want them to be smart about it. I think probably the best bet there is the Aaron Fox because he probably costs the least. And has a lot of room for improvement. I just think that he's not a great shooter, and that concerns me in a playoff series. Also, doesn't have playoff experience. But um, you know, I'm I'm scared. I'm scared of what can happen. Incremental growth is hopefully what they what they like what they do. Um, but uh, it's obviously exciting to to go hunt for stars. And and to <clears throat> sorry, and to the point that um, you're making about Boston. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was a report yesterday that um, that Kemba may want out. So you know, there's all kinds of issues no, happening. No one's traded for that contract, um, but he can he can try. <laughs> yeah. No. It's they they literally did have a worst case scenario season. Um, finally, we will end with this. Um, anybody who knows. Jordan and I personally know that we're very close friends and we try to end every conversation we have that may be on some serious topic on a positive note because that's just the kind of guys we are and the kind of friends we are. So I think the one positive is that atmosphere inside MSG. It was sensational. You gave me the absolute pleasure of being there for game two and it was unreal. And I'm going to read you something Charles Barkley said yesterday on a conference call promoting a charity golf tournament he's playing in in, in uh, July. 
the energy that those fans were showing during the playoffs, man, that's what the playoffs are about. That place was on fire. And what's crazy, I was telling Kenny and Shaq this actually two nights ago. The Brooklyn Nets got a much better team, but when they play, it's like a mausoleum. And, and they got a much better team. So, man, I'm telling you, I want them, meaning the Knicks, because that place was on fire. And I'm hoping that y'all keep getting better because I've been there when it's on fire. Um, so just on a positive note, I mean, that playoff atmosphere was something really, really special. I, I think, I, absolutely. I mean, the first game the, the first game and the second game that I was at, I thought game five was a little bit um, less loud. Uh, towards the end, it got a little loud when quickly went on that run. But um, those first two games were the loudest arena I've ever been in. Um, I've been to, you know, World Series games a little bit better with the uh, a roof keeps the noise in, but um, you know it was it was incredibly fun. Um, so I hope I think the Knicks raised their stock in, in front of the league. You know I think people can really appreciate and see what it looks like to win in New York now. Um, and, and I hope that that's why these guys are going to be that's why Knicks going to be connected to these players because I think they saw that the Knicks are building something and they might want to be a part of that. Um, the Nets, the, the Nets, they do play at a mausoleum. There's not a culture there that's been built um, over time. They left New Jersey. Maybe because in New Jersey there'd be a lot of crowd, but, um, you know, the Knicks are the heart of the city. And you could, it was just walking to game one and the amount of people wearing jerseys and, like, getting me fist bumps in the street just because I'm wearing a Knicks shirt. Um, it was awesome. Um, and obviously it didn't go the way we wanted it to go, but, you know, for baseball, there's those two teams. For football, there's two teams, or really three teams technically. Um, in in New York, the Nets are here, but the Knicks are the team. Yeah. If you're from New York and you root for and you root for you watch basketball. The Knicks are the team. It's kind of our it's kind of our one team that that we all have together as as a as a city. So um, we're we're a Knicks town, and it's going to stay that way no matter how many players the Nets sign. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully not, but how many championships they might win with this roster. Um, you know, the Knicks are always going to be different. MSG is always going to be different than, than anywhere else. And you just got to hope that, that, that they start to build something now. And it feels like they did, and it feels like they've changed their perception in the league. They didn't, the playoff series, they didn't look great, but got a coach that's well respected and fans that are rabid, and people have got to look at, at what that could look like and what that is. So we'll, uh, we'll see what that attracts from the offseason. It's been a fun ride. Jordan Brickman, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up, and I can't wait to see how this summer plays out. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We will see you next time.